0: Hello and welcome to Intrepid Times, your home for narrative travel writing with heart. I'm Nathan Thomas, and alongside my co-host Jennifer Roberts, we take you behind the scenes of some of our most popular travel stories, get you to meet travel writers, and help you discover how you can share your own travel stories with the world. Welcome back to the Intrepid Times Travel Writing Podcast. We're here with a very special guest today, John Dolan, an author, well, traveler, perhaps um, accidental or deliberate provocateur, someone who's extremely well-known as an author and writer in many different circles. So I'm not sure if those circles overlap that much with the audience of Intrepid Times. And now that John is out with a travel book, a travel memoir called Erdogan Pizza, and we'll be providing links where people can get their copy alongside this podcast. I thought it was just such a wonderful opportunity to talk to John about his writings and travel. But John, I suppose the challenge for us is for folks who don't have background on your writings and your adventures, which have gone to taken you to pretty much every corner uh, of the world. um, I'm wondering what is a good place to start? Should we begin in Moscow or should we go back before then?
1: I just think you know, uh, I traveled because I failed uh i was I was a failed academic, and uh I ended up being stuck in one place in Berkeley for a long time, trying to uh get a job in all kinds of places all over the world and then I got a job far away in uh, Dunedin, New Zealand, in one of the most remote towns in the world. And uh, it was a great job. I I had a great time there. But uh, I married there and my wife and I both decided that Dunedin, while a wonderful place, was kind of small. So we bounced off to Moscow and I quit my job and that's uh, how I come to ruin myself, as the feller says, uh, and travel even more to even weirder places.
0: It's funny you you mentioned Dunedin, um, because that's that's where I studied, uh, although I've lost wow. the accent long ago. I was at the University of Otago, picked up a history degree there uh, between 2011 and 2013. I believe you taught there in the 90s.
1: I taught there in the same arts building that you were in probably the burns
0: building i believe that concrete concrete monstrosity
1: yeah it was a pretty ugly place but you know (laughs) it always encouraged me when i was driving there i had a house out on uh Port chalmers and how beautiful i I always felt good when i saw the the building because you know i'd 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 been hanging on by my teeth at berkeley for a long time and I got tenure in Otago and I I was very proud of that. I, I'm One of the things that I think in gets involved in travel is that a lot of people think bouncing around is, is cool and being alone is cool. I was never like that. I was kind of a lonely kid and I really wanted to be part of a group all my life. And uh, when the English department at Otago took me in and gave me tenure, I was very happy,
0: and you went and you're quite right in saying that Dunedin is pretty small. I don't know if you ever read um Keith Richards in his memoir absolutely goes to town uh, on the place, describing it as the most boring city on the planet. Though I think he was a bit harsh. I, um, they probably couldn't like, get
1: any. You know, that one thing I can testify is you can't get any good drugs in Dunedin. So I imagine <laughs>
0: this is true. So I hear. Keith
1: was having a hard time.
0: So after Dunedin, you went to Moscow and you became involved quite intimately in one of the most fascinating journalistic literature, artistic, historical, if you will, projects, um, which is, of course, the Exile Mm. uh, publication. How would you summarize that for someone listening to this who's not heard of the Exile and the work you were doing in Moscow then?
1: Revenge. Uh, A revenge project in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think people now have a hard time understanding how bland and uh, stable the 1990s seemed to an American, and particularly to a group of Americans who uh, didn't fit in very well. And for various reasons, uh, I and the other editors of The Exile fit that category. The overall editor was uh, Mark Ames, along with Matt Tabey. Uh, Mark was a student of mine from Berkeley, and he started studying Russian, and eventually he got much more fluent than I was, and he moved to Russia, and together with Matt, he started this uh, scurrilous pamphlet-style newspaper full of uh, strip club ads and scurrilous journalism sparing no one, and Asked me to uh, work for him. And I did. I I involved a lot, I evolved a lot of personae in the process because The Exile only had maybe a half dozen people, real people, biographical entities working for it. But the bylines were by maybe 25 people because we just worked in character as a restaurant writer or Uh, in my case, The the War Nerd, or as a snotty book reviewer, uh, also in my case, uh, under various names, as a nasty little snobby club reviewer under Mark's name or Matt's name. We did what we had to, and we had no respect for anyone, and people liked it.
0: What was your experience like moving from California to Beneden and then to Moscow? Like, What was day-to-day life? like there for you? Did you enjoy being in an apartment, going out to the supermarket? Was it just a completely crazy, hedonistic time? How do you look back on that period of your life?
1: It was restful in a way. You have to understand, when, when I went to New Zealand, I didn't have just an ordinary English literature job. I was hired to teach the first year med students who had to get an A or they wouldn't be allowed to go on to second year. So you have to imagine a lecture hall, the biggest in the university, I forget what it was called, but it was big, huge arena style room with more than 700 18 year old medical students, desperate for an A, first cohort who had to take the course that I was hired to develop, all staring down me, down at me with hatred. and. Uh, I tend to feel a little guilty anyway. I'm from that kind of background. And uh, I was terrified at Otago. Uh, When I later got to teach people to write poetry and do other uh, kinds of literary analysis, it felt like a vacation. So my first years at Otago were quite tense. And compared to that, just going to our little offices and doing some speed and writing a bunch of articles every week or so seemed very easy and i'd studied russian too i that was how mark got interested in russia and russian things i studied russian way back in the 1980s uh again because i you know i had to study some languages for a PhD, and uh, I figured, you know, I can I can read French anyway, and the other one I'll go for Russian because it's it's not another civilized West European language. There was an element of of vengeance in all of this.
0: That's evident in the in the articles that arose from that period. They have this rebellious energy to them. He, this was the time, and this will gradually get us into the narrative of your latest book, our Erdogan Pizza. You developed this persona, this character, Gary Bracher, and yeah. his articles developed an enormous audience and ended up getting you in quite a lot of trouble when you, as the real author of them, was revealed.
1: Yeah, uh, Retcher was an instant hit. We we developed a lot of different characters in our writing and people argued over who those characters really were. But we'd never had anything like Bretcher. Uh, the circumstances were that the United States was about to go into Iraq after 9-11. And I had actually spent a uh, very lonely adolescence as uh, a weapons nerd. Uh, I, I didn't have any friends at UC Berkeley. So I just went down to the periodical room and went through Jane's armored vehicles and Jane's armor-piercing projectiles and Jane's missile systems and all of those books. And I read every entry. The only two things that interested me were the Oakland Raiders and various weapon systems. And so I knew that stuff for real. And what I had known after a few years is that it doesn't matter much guerrilla war doesn't depend on those fascinating weapon systems as interesting as they are. What it depends on is a network of informers and winning the allegiance of the local people, but that's never as easy as the hearts and minds people think it is. So I just knew that we were going to get into Iraq and we were not going to get out of there without a lot of pain, both for the local people and for the American soldiers who were there, forced to be there by their enlistment, and also for the, the taxpayers who were going to pay an enormous amount. Part of that is because my my own background was in a family that, that was proud of its Republican traditions in Ireland, and I sort of took that up during the 1980s, and I researched what had actually happened in the Irish Rebellion And how a very few people with a very few weapons could paralyze what was then the most effective military force in the world. And so I knew what would happen in Iraq. And I invented a a character to speak it because nobody wanted to hear from John Dolan, this snotty book reviewer professor about Iraq. So I invented Gary Brecher, who was an angry, underachieving, fat nerd, War fan from Fresno, California, who worked as a data entry clerk and hated everybody. And I was able to to come up with remembered diction, a whole mode of speech which which I'd forgotten I knew from the time when I was growing up in a in what was a proto suburb of San Francisco, and my friends were Oki kids. Well, they were my friends until they dropped rocks on my head, which usually happened. Uh, they, I, uh, I mean, a sort of salbug literature. I don't know if people know what salbugs are, but like uh, dirt-clawed salbug jargon. And Bretcher spoke that. And he used it to say, this is a really stupid idea, this invasion. He was no peacenik, but he could appeal to people who weren't peaceniks to convince them that this war was a bad idea.
0: So this kind of cocktail of like a deep technical knowledge of military strategy that you developed from your adolescence, your literary skill as a a writer, professor, book reviewer, and this anger, this refusal to accept the status quo won you a lot of adherence and also a lot of uh, enemies at some point as well.
1: Oh, yes, yes. First, I got the adherence. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I started to take my show on the road, I found out I, I had made a lot of enemies as well. But uh, yeah, at first it was a big hit. It was it was like everybody loved Brecher far beyond Moscow because the exile circulated online mostly. And uh, I wrote about Iraq. I wrote about other evolving conflicts in this snarly, colloquial tone. But my points actually made sense. They were rooted, as you say, in, in a fairly deep study of guerrilla warfare, starting with Ireland, and in the doctrine of guerrilla warfare, and the way that modern weapons had failed to make a dent in guerrilla warfare. So people took to that. They they sensed, I think, that, that I, I was for real. The, the first column was a big hit. It was like, Yeah okay so I'm a war nerd a backseat sergeant I sit here doing Diet Coke farts doing my data entry job in Fresno which is the shittiest town in California and people really love that voice and there was something true about it you know that was probably a much more accurate reflection of who I am than than my snotty book review voice was and they started becoming fans to the point that when they guessed who Brecher was one of my favorite accomplishments, and I'm very proud of this, is that someone in a comment section in the Exile said, I wonder if the Gary Brecher column is written by John Dolan and some furious Brecher fan wrote back, Gary Brecher has more talent in his little finger than John Dolan does in his whole body. So you know, either way, you're, you're complimenting me. So what the hell?
0: So how did you, the the narrative of Erdogan pizza written by John Dolan, uh, just as talented as Gary Brecher begins with you in Kuwait and you're attempting to be an English teacher to the army there. Um, But Gary Brecher, Brecher columns have surfaced. Your identity is revealed, and it is suggested that you perhaps don't show up to to fulfill your <laughs> teaching yeah. duties. Uh, yeah. How did you? How did you end up in Kuwait in the in the first place?
1: Well, because uh, the gig with the exile ended in Moscow. Did I just say gig? Oh well, can't be helped. Um, (laughs) my job in Moscow ended with the exile and, uh, we were sort of shut down by the regime. Uh, and, uh, I had to go back to North America. My wife and I had been planning to move to Canada for some time. We finally got citizenship. So after a few years in New Zealand, waiting for Canadian citizenship, we went to Canada. And initially, I got a university teaching job, but that quickly ended because they said I hadn't reapplied uh, in time. I didn't know anything about reapplying. And uh, we ended up living on a boat. And the boat was cold. And it was in Victoria Harbor. And we were just cold and hungry. And uh, after that, we fled to my brother's place where I just sort of huddled near the fireplace for a really long time and (laughs) tried to get warm again and then sort of scuffed up a living around British Columbia. But we didn't make a good living ever, and uh, we barely paid the rent. So we first started thinking about foreign teaching jobs with uh, English as a second language. First, we went, and we were very lucky. We got a job in Sulmania in Kurdistan, and uh, I didn't know how lucky we were because I, it was my first posting in the Middle East. And I thought Sulmania was probably typical. It's, uh, re- later, I realized it's not. It's paradise compared to many other places in the Middle East. We both fell in love with the Kurdish people and with Kurdistan in general. But then I got fired because of a Warner article that some little jerk had researched and given to the neocon who ran the place. And it was anti-war and uh, it was disrespectful, scurrilous as the exile was. And he fired me long distance. And so we went back to British Columbia and scuffed around and were poor again. Then we got another job, both of us, at a sort of preparatory school, advanced high school, in Najran, Saudi Arabia, just a couple of miles from Yemen. And uh, we didn't know what that was going to be like, but that was an extraordinary experience. That was probably the most vivid experience of the last few decades. But they wanted to hire me full-time, and they said, yes, 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 you can get a visa wherever. And the Saudi visa, a mess, you can't get a Saudi visa long distance. I thought you could. So I I couldn't go back there. And we were poor again. And uh, scuffing around British Columbia. And, you know, the Vancouver area is quite a cold place if you're not part of a social network there. You're uh, like a permanent tourist, but a tourist with no money. So when the chance to get a job in Kuwait for both of us popped up, We grabbed it and we went to Kuwait. But unfortunately, someone had researched my War Nerd articles again. And this fierce little professor from Mauritius got me ambushed. He said he had this big grin suddenly and said, We're just going to have you teach a sample class. And he opened a door and motioned for me to enter. Inside was a giant collection of more high officers of the Kuwaiti army than I thought they ever had. And they were not in a good mood.
0: They certainly were not. And yeah. I, I think the, the setup that you've created now and, and the narrative of Kuwait features in your book, so, so folks can can read that there, is one of the most unusual, perhaps even unique, Background to a travel narrative that you know I'm I'm fairly steeped in the genre, but we have here someone who's traveling not because of you know some wanderlust, curiosity, or some sort of romanticism, but because you need to make a living. But you're being evicted from place after place, and you're choosing really you know unusual, quite places that folks you know sitting around at home would probably consider quite dangerous, perhaps perhaps rightly so. And you're being evicted time after time because of your writing, this legacy of articles that you created in character while living in Moscow. It's just such a fascinating foundation on which to base a travel narrative.
1: Yeah, I paid for that ethos. (laughs) It's like, I mean, when you you look up Gary Brecher, I want everybody to know that has been paid in full (laughs) because it pursued (laughs) me around the world. I couldn't get away from it.
0: So what we have as as readers of Erdogan Pizza, your story is, you know, after Kuwait, that essentially the Kuwait experience more or less repeats itself in East Timor, except not for a Gary Bretter column, but for something you wrote for uh, Pando, a San Francisco publication, former, sadly, San Francisco publication, uh, while you were living there. And and then you end up, I don't want to give away the whole story to folks, but you, you end up in Europe and you're living this existence by which I was Wondering whether I even dared voice this characterization to you, because I, I don't know what you'll think about it, but a, a life that you're you're making money as a writer, an English teacher, and then eventually, and we'll get to that soon, as a podcaster. And I was thinking this lifestyle, traveling around, making money online as a writer and podcaster, this sounds almost like a millennial digital nomad uh, experience.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it is. Um, and... I I don't want to sound ungrateful because once the podcast in particular got going, it did make money and we did have a pretty good existence. But, you know, when we were forced out of Timor because of something I wrote, uh, which somehow offended the Indonesian army, I, I could not have believed the Indonesian army could get offended by anything I wrote. I was nobody. And, you know, they're the people who wiped out a quarter of the population of Timor. And and they were they deigned to be offended by something I wrote about traveling in the ruins of the mess they'd made in uh, East Timor. And that didn't get me fired. Worse yet, it got my wife fired because she was the only one who'd had a job. My notoriety had preceded me in East Timor. So the rather supercilious Affected buffoon who ran her job with the Timorese army put pressure on her, basically terrorized her in order to put pressure on me to withdraw the article. But I had really good editors, Mark Ames and Paul Carr at Pando, who, when I said in terror, please withdraw my article about Timor, they're scaring the life out of us, we need the money, we're broke. They said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If need be, we'll fund you to escape Timor. But you said the truth and don't, don't back down. I was very ashamed of that because, you know, one thing that I, I think a lot of people don't quite get is uh, you may have principles, but principles need money. And if you don't have any money you'll sacrifice a lot of principles. And I, I was ready to withdraw that article when they sort of slapped me awake. And thanks to Paul Carr and Mark Ames, we got paid for a flight to Istanbul because we'd, we'd looked online. I don't know, maybe some of your, your listeners do something like this. We looked online. I, I just Googled 10 cheapest countries. <laughs> and one of them that came up was Macedonia and now called North Macedonia to appease the Greeks. And that was supposedly really cheap. And I figure, okay, it's a Slavic language. I can speak Russian. I can speak Macedonian probably. It turned out, by the way, that Macedonians don't want to speak Russian. They don't want to be reminded about Russian. Nothing about that. They want to speak English. So anyway. Uh, But we moved to Macedonia, a really, really cheap place, and had a nice life. And at that time, the podcast began, Radio War Nerd, and and uh, Mark and I, Mark Ames and I talked about war, any war, you know, from Tang China to what happened last week in Gaza Strip, anything. And we both had that kind of goofy, blathering, magpie attitude that picked up on all kinds of useless knowledge and bounced it around in a, in a well-honed sort of pattern. And it caught on uh, to my astonishment. It actually made a living for us. And and after that, we were able to, to travel in, in some comfort. Well, maybe not comfort, but travel sort of, you know, like Motel 6 level.
0: Yeah, as opposed to the the harrowing overnight buses uh, that you took,
1: <laughs> yeah. and
0: which are described in a great deal of vivid detail, uh, including the the lack of bathroom breaks and grumpy Greek border officials and <laughs> yeah. all of the um, you, you give a lot of voice to the to the unglamorous sides of travel, the 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 long bus journeys, the the food poisoning, the. sort of grim landlords that you encounter but there's also i don't know if i want to say like a kind of romantic vision of beauty but I, i get the sense that there's some enjoyment or fascination there in the places that you find like you you weave in your storytelling your knowledge of the history of the place and that's done in your very you know critical of the quote-unquote conventional narrative you're pulling the blinders away from people so they can actually see clearly what the heck is going on in this place which is great to read you describe it at some point you become an expert in towers as you're wandering around the coast i believe in italy i suppose it's a long-winded way of saying despite all the the grim stuff um which you write about in a very entertaining way Do you you, have you been enjoying perhaps more recently as your circumstances have improved? But the travel side at all has it been fun for you? Is it something that gives you pleasure?
1: That's a really interesting question, and I I suspect the answer is yes. But I don't really specialize in enjoyment. (laughs) It's like I probably experiencing it experience it uh, at times, but I would be the last to know. Um, it was kind of a family trait. We we were a pretty grim lot, but we were also funny, you know, like a lot of grim families are funny. And we would try to top each other in uh, piling on the exaggerations in various stories. Well, not exaggerations, but, you know, piling on the the exaggeration which is there, which is actually there in life, but which people choose. Not to talk about very much. Uh, Black humor, I suppose that it's called. But uh, I'm more attuned to the black humor than to anything like enjoyment, partly because, and if you read the book, this will come across pretty clearly. It it wasn't until I was in my 30s that someone said, Oh, you're an anxiety depressive. And I thought, Oh, yeah, so I am. I I thought I was just scared all the time. So I've always been scared. And Either when you're scared, maybe some of your readers are scared too, you will have noticed that either you consign yourself to isolation because nobody wants to be around scared very much, or you learn to make it into some kind of humor or interesting tale. And I've tried to do that. But, but no, it's, it's experienced as real anxiety, I think.
0: Yeah, we, we speak a lot at Intrepid Times about the link between anxiety and travel, and some people, and my co-editor Jennifer Roberts is, thinks about this a lot, is she, she deliberately chose travel as a means to become less anxious, or at least to not let anxiety restrict her life more. Do you find that travel has helped you in that regard, or it's just that, just another annoyance to, to cope with the daily chores?
1: No, that's uh, that's a good question. By the way your partner in the podcast what does she find did she find that it reduced her anxiety Jennifer
0: did yeah she's i don't want to speak too much for her but she found that um we we had a discussion on this a, a couple of months ago that that travel was a good environment in which to practice some of the techniques that she learned to overcome anxiety and also to become more comfortable with uncertainty. I hope I'm doing justice to her point yeah, of view
1: with that. I I hope so, because it makes complete sense to me. Yes, I, there was a point at which, after I had yelled at somebody who'd messed up our arrangements in some godforsaken hole, I realized, god damn, I'm like Frodo, come back to the Shire. It's like... <laughs> These people with their little sticks and their bows are, are <laughs> who, who scared me when I was in Berkeley, I would trample those people. Now <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've dealt with room clerks in Timor the hell with it. I I'm not scared of them anymore. So yeah, I think I did get tougher and my wife got tougher too, because we're both quite shy people. And, uh, I mean, like notably, even even in New Zealand, even in Dunedin, we would have both been considered shy people. And as you know, that's that's like the world capital of shy. Uh, but after a while, yeah, if if you've managed to insist on getting your room changed twenty times or so, you realize that you're a little tougher. Or rather, I'll I'll tell you what's interesting you don't feel like you're any tougher. You're always scared, or at least I'm always scared. But it's surprising how um, other people just fall over when you push them, so to speak. Not that you got any tougher, but wow, other people got weaker.
0: That's really interesting. I think a lot of people who travel a lot, whether deliberately or just through through happen reluctant happenstance, uh, can, can relate to that. So I want to bring folks back to your book erdogan pizza so it's composed of i think quite edited and, and reworked but dispatches that you originally wrote to your your community of listeners to your war nerd radio show war nerd podcast that you host with mark ames and so they, they kind of read outside of that context if you're just reading it as a book and i hope many folks will pick up and up and do so it reads almost like a like a diary you know october eleven horrible seasickness on the boat from Albania to, to Italy, I suppose. And I think you actually acknowledge this. I don't think you intended that this would eventually be composed as a as a travel book. What, what gave you that idea? When did that insight crystallize?
1: Well, slowly. I mean, uh, we've been doing the podcast for, I think, almost seven years. And one of my tasks as half of the podcast team... Uh, well, a third, it's me and Mark doing the jabbering, plus all of our guests. And uh, we have a sound engineer, Brendan, he's part of the team, too. But one of my jobs was to write about the history of the places we visited. And we always, my wife and I had to keep visiting new places because we don't have residency anywhere really. We are not legal in the US because my wife once overstayed her time there and now she's blacklisted in the US and we can't really visit there together at all. New Zealand is probably legal for both of us, but it, as you know, you don't want to fly to New Zealand any more often than you have to. So Uh, We've been spending most of our time bouncing around the rest of the world, especially more recently, especially the EU, because uh, I have an application for Irish citizenship, which has completely stalled. Basically, they said, uh, you claim that your grandfather was born in this and this parish, but uh, we choose not to believe that. And so that's hanging fire. Meanwhile, we're living in Italy, and our status even here is not quite certain. So we bounced. We bounced all over the world. And every place we bounced, there was a really interesting aspect of military history to discuss, sometimes recent, sometimes remote. Um, Those towers you mentioned in Italy, those were uh, put together as a way of absorbing the local population, or at least some of it, when Turkish pirates attacked. And you wouldn't have thought of that, but this was a massive part of Mediterranean history. Uh, We stayed in a Toronto where 1,500 people were beheaded in one day as part of a, a failed Turkish attempt to march to Rome. And you discover strange, gory, horrific, sometimes magnificent stories, like the, the Albanian story of resistance to the Ottoman also. Uh, but you only slowly find these things, like you, you come across a wall and like, whose wall is that? Where? When was that built? How come it looks so funny? How come the bricks are so flat? And you research that and you find extraordinary things. And one thing you realize is, what a boneyard this planet is, how many layers of bloodied corpses are underneath our feet.
0: I think that's a good um, characteristic uh, note on which to to wrap up. Um, thank you so much for your time, John. And just finally, for folks who want to get a copy of Erdogan Pizza, what's the best way for them to do so?
1: Uh, yeah, it'll be available tomorrow on amazon.com. And it's also available on my site, johndolanwrites.com.
0: Fantastic. So by the time this is published, the book will be out. We'll provide a link to the Amazon and to your website, John, um, as well as a few other bits and pieces referring to what we've discussed. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. I, I really, really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it sounds good. I, I, I'd like to hear from people who have travel experiences that are sort of similar to mine. Uh, I enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. Don't forget to join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of the Travel Writing Podcast. See you next time.